This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're speaking with Andrew Albin, a scholar of late medieval English literature and the history of the senses. This episode is about the sounds of medieval books. Reading today is typically silent. Whether reading a book in a library or reading messages on our phones, we don't expect the activity to be noisy. At most, we expect the sound of a page quietly turning. But Andrew Albin is interested in the medieval period, when books made all kinds of sounds. Medieval books were noisy. They crackled and creaked, and were usually read aloud, even in private. Andrew argues that we should think of medieval books not just as objects to look at, but as a kind of musical instrument that needs a reader to bring its sounds to life. Andrew Alben, welcome. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about the sounds of medieval books. And a first question that I have is just for people that don't know, what, what were medieval books? What were they like? Yeah. So Middle Ages, you're not getting identically printed, typeset, you know, you know, nicely edited books. You're getting this is before the invention of the printer. Exactly, press. exactly, right? Okay. You're getting like handwritten, painstaking, you know, like objects of labor. Uh, but you have there, right, this body of uh, literally a body of material, right? Like the manuscript is a collection of animal skins um, that have been, you know, carefully scraped and prepared and stretched and and uh, and you know, readied for so, taking. So ink. they didn't have paper; they were writing on animal skins. So they do have paper. Okay. Um, uh, paper. I forget the exact date, but I think you know, by the 13th century, paper is uh, an available writing um, uh, surface. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is primarily used for really workaday objects, right? Um, if you're making a book, you're going to be using parchment because parchment is more durable. Um, it's also more expensive, and books are prestige objects, um, especially if they're well prepared and you know illustrated. Um, and I think the the interesting thing about manuscripts, right, is that they're profoundly interactive objects. Um, even though when we encounter them now in the archive, like for good reasons, um, we're supposed to interact them with it, with them as little as possible um, in order to preserve them for future users who might want to consult them. Um, and I, there's a part of me that's very like has a suspicion that archival practices end up reinforcing intellectual practices, right? So like our being forbidden from like messing around with the manuscript also encourages a style of thinking that engages with the manuscript as a visual object. Um, and so part of the work that I'm trying to build now is to come up with styles of thinking about and working with manuscripts that reinvests them with sound. Yeah. I'm just going to check on this T and yeah, then please. I want to ask you another question. Let's see. Yeah, I would say that's all right. Would you like some? Sure. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm now wondering like, what what do manuscripts sound like? Yeah, this is fascinating, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, you know, you have the classic sound of like the turning page, but because it's made out of animal vellum um, or animal parchment, it 
like it has a different sound quality, right? Like it crinkles and cracks as you sort of turn the page um, because it's prepared skin, right? Um, so it doesn't have the same kind of pliability as, you know, pulp paper does or, or you, know, you know, paper as we, as we use it today. Um, uh, so there's definitely a different sound quality there, but reading practices during the Middle Ages were really different from reading practices now. Okay. Because um, nowadays, yeah, I think silent reading is just the norm. Precisely, precisely, Only right? Only children read aloud or maybe audiobook professionals. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, there are a couple of things to say about that, right? You know, the idea that silent reading is the norm emerges in the 18th century, I think, 17th? Yeah, 18th, 18th century, in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and it has a lot to do with the um, wider availability of printed books and also the privatization, right? The sort of taking reading as a practice and doing it in the domestic space. Um, mm. And so-, so back in the medieval period, like how did sound play into their reading practices? So it was almost by default, um, you were speaking the texts uh, in some form of out loud manner, right? Um, even when you were reading it by yourself. Um, oh, interesting. So, so not just for an audience. No. Although okay. although part of the the pleasure of, of books, of literature during the period was precisely that, was reading a text for an audience, right? For a social gathering, right? Um, you'd read texts and you'd share the story and you'd talk about the story. Um, we have these great um, images and narrative scenes from literary texts that show us that book reading was a social practice. But even when you're reading a book by yourself, you're sort of subvocalizing the words, right? You're sort of muttering them to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in part coming from monastic traditions, where when you read the, the Bible, monastic is like monastery, yeah, as in yeah. Mon- monasteries, and right? Monks and yeah, precisely, precisely. Um, so part of your worship practice in the monastery is to read the Bible um, and to reflect on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And their practices were very much about reading the Bible out loud. Um, as part of the practice, you're supposed to chew over the words. Um, and so as that practice moves out into sort of wider public um, and more people in a wider public acquire books and learn how to read and want to read, um, those practices end up spreading outward as well. Um, hmm. Yeah. I just want to pause some more. Tea, yeah, actually. please. Do you yeah. want some more? I love you. Do you want any more? Yeah, thank you. Okay. That's good, like background noise of tea <laughs> the social yeah. the social uh, life of sound right right would you like some tea? okay um so there's something kind of social we have to think about when we think about like the sounds of reading for medieval people we have to think about it as kind of social right like we've talked about the sound of the pages yeah but we also have to think about kind of you know, the sounds of reading aloud with an audience, or even if there's not an audience, kind of the idea that there might be. Yeah. And also like, because books are made out of parchment, right? That's living flesh. Well, dead flesh. Dead flesh, but like- (laughs) Once living. Once living flesh. Um, Uh And the tactility of engaging with a medieval manuscript is really quite striking because you can feel with your hand what side was the outside of the animal, what side was the inside of the animal. You can see on the page. Like its skin, like which was the which was the, of its skin. The piece with the fur and which oh, was wow. the piece that was the inside that was against the, the fat muscle. muscle. Yeah. Um, uh, and so as you're engaging with the book, it's this intensely corporeal, bodily, sensory, even sensual experience. 
Um, and so the degree to which like your body is pulled into the experience of reading a manuscript mm -hmm. is much more intense than our modern experience of engaging with a printed book. Do you, do you have any manuscript that we can kind of like look at? And oh, think about? I wish, I you wish. Um, uh, I do have um, uh, some animal parchment that I'm working on for uh, a separate project um, that I could this give you. This is animal parchment? Yeah, that's animal parchment. Okay, can we, yes. can we <laughs> um, hear it, yes. touch it? <laughs> Okay, so this, first of all, I think I need to narrate for listeners what we're seeing here. This is a huge sheet. It's kind of whitish, but I'm starting to see, I feel like I can see a vague animal shape kind of spine. Yeah. So, so yeah, tell us again what, what we should be looking at. Yeah, here. so I mean, like, this is this is a sheepskin. Um, okay. Uh, the hair side, I mean, like, if you feel, I'm right? Gonna, I'm going to, okay. yeah. Oh yeah, it's right. fuzzy. It's fuzzy. It has a suede feel. Suede, yeah, exactly. Um, and then you can feel the reverse. <laughs> this is a very large. Okay. Oh, and that's much more like leather. Yeah. Yeah, like smooth leather. Yeah, very much, right? Okay. So part of what's driving my thinking about this particular project um, is trying to do that thing that I mentioned earlier about um, trying to reinvest the manuscript with sound. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to like think through is, all right, so when we look at medieval books, uh, we tend to think about them as if they were the ancestors of modern books, right? Mm -hmm. And so we tend to conceptualize them as if they were modern books. Yeah, and all the kind of silent and smooth reading. Precisely. That associate that with. Precisely. Yeah. But, you know, as we were saying earlier, right, if the culture of allowed reading yeah. was such a big part of medieval books, medieval books and book reading, mm -hmm. um, then as a technology, the medieval manuscript has to have been built knowing that its future was going to be in sound and that most people were going to encounter what was inside the book through their ears and not through their eyes. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the way that I'm coming at that is to say, rather than compare the medieval book to a modern printed book, I want to compare the medieval book to a musical instrument. Um, they're both um, sound producing technologies that require a human being to take them up to play with them in order to make them produce the sound. And what's so interesting is I've been doing some thinking about this and talking with, I have um, very dear and delightful friends who are um, uh, uh, professional musicians who specialize in early music. Um, one in particular, Nicolas Eligman, he specializes in um, uh, bowed and plucked string instruments. Um, mm. And one thing that he sort of explained to me, uh, which kind of blew my mind, was um, we have good evidence that medieval uh, plucked string instruments, so the, the sort of flat surface, which creates the sounding board. Um, so that part of the instrument, the flat top of the instrument, was oftentimes made out of parchment rather than made out of wood. So that same animal skin parchment. Same animal skin okay. parchment. And most of the depictions that we have of medieval instrument uh, instrument players playing plucked string instruments, they're using a quill in order to pluck the strings. Oh, wow. So the so same materials... quill. <laughs> precisely, right? The same materials you use to write a book are the materials that go into making a medieval plucked string instrument make sound. Do you have one of these instruments? Of yes. Can so, we see it? Can yeah. we hear it? So, okay. Um... So this is the full um, quilt. This is a, a, a this is a turkey feather. Um, 
And so Middle Ages, turkeys, probably not, but peacocks for sure. And so you can sort of see you have the writing end here. Yeah. Um, if you were to snip this off, the in, the inside would be hollow. It'd be a good place to sort of, you know, suck up ink and then use ink in your writing. This is the the end that points out. And so... So there's a kind of, yeah, sort of a thin pointy end. The yeah. actual kind of feathers have been cut off, but we're just yeah. getting the kind of spine of the exactly. feather. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so with this, this is the piece that would probably be parchment. Okay. Um, so, I mean, is it, for people that can't see this, so it looks loosely like a guitar. Yeah. And so the kind of the body, the sort of round part of the the instrument that would be where the parchment would be covering it. exactly exactly yeah. yeah um and so either the round part of the instrument or in particular the rose at the center the opening yeah, yeah. i've seen a lot of instrument makers say that they've created their roses out of part like multiple layers of parchment in order to create more elaborate designs um but yeah i mean you know gives us a <laughs> bit of a sound um these are uh uh not properly historical gut strings um these are synthetic strings um historically Wait, so the strings would be made of gut yeah it would have been made out of probably cat gut um so so many animals had to die for all of these books and instruments <laughs> absolutely i mean again and this is one of the things like talking with the, the performers in alchemy uh you know, when they talk about their relationships to their instruments and the ways that their instruments respond to the environmental conditions, right? The instruments are living objects, right? They swell, they change their tone, they become more temperamental based on how humid, how hot, how cold, how crowded um, the space that they're performing in is. So in the same- Because it's all this like organic material. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and books do the same things, right? You know, the reason why we have the metal clasps on medieval books um, to sort of keep the, the covers closed is the parchment that's in the middle eventually is going to want to return to the shape of the animal um, if it's given oh. enough humidity. Um, and so you have the clasps on the covers of the book in order to keep it tightly squeezed shut so that the pages don't warp and memory of the <laughs> animal that it once was. Wow. Right? So the instruments and the books are sort of living organic creatures. Mm. Um, and I think that sets up a really interesting metaphor for thinking about how we could um, reimagine medieval book readers and their relationship to their books mm -hmm. and also reimagine our like intellectual or scholarly relationship to medieval books, right? Mm -hmm. If we re-encounter the medieval book as an instrument rather than as a modern printed edition mm -hmm. um, and think about the medieval uh, manuscript as a sonorous instrument, um, that requires our interaction in order to make it sound again. That yeah, opens we can't just look at it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's not how it was designed. It's not the technology. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I love this idea of kind of like the book as like a, a sound producing technology. Precisely. Right? Like, yeah, thinking about that parallel with the musical instrument and the book. Um, um, okay, I have a last question, yeah. which is slightly different. But um, so you know, you've talked about kind of the book as a sound technology and thinking about like the book as something to be read aloud. Um, so if you could have like any person, let's say living, because mm -hmm. then maybe it could happen, like any living person read something aloud to you. Mm. So book of your choice, person of your choice, who would you want to hear read to you and what would they read? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, oh gosh. Um, so I have one answer that 
I can sort of gain access to because there's a recording of them reading this poem. Okay. Um, one of uh, my favorite poets, Mark Doty, um, has, uh, well, I'll have to look up the title, um, has a poem uh, of which there is a recording um, of him thinking about and reflecting on um, his relationship with his partner who passed away from AIDS. Um, and the recording is just, he's an amazing narrative poet. Um, he spins a beautiful story. He describes with such intensity and it's this beautiful reflection on his like very fond and kind of melancholic. I wouldn't say melancholic. Um, I'd say wistful, uh, recollections and joyful recollections of his partner who has passed. Um, uh, and there's one line, um, in the middle of the poem, uh, warm brown tea. It's a part of a line. And the way he speaks it, every time I listen to it, I just get chills. Um, it's so beautiful. Um, and the poem is so touching. Um, wow. Um, okay. Well, Andrew Alban, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This has been such a, a delightful conversation. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Andrew describes his collaboration with a sound artist on an art installation involving folded paper sculptures and a medieval Bible. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscom, with editorial assistance from me, Monsi Garnani, and from me, Tiani D. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.